Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in over the summer uh, where we're looking at a very particular set of psalms. You know, the psalms uh, are the prayer book of the Bible. They made up the songs and prayers that Israel was given uh, to sing and to pray together uh, in response to God's work. And there's a set of those psalms. There's no other uh, book of the Old Testament that's more often applied by the authors of the New Testament to Jesus than the Psalms. Uh, They seem to believe that the Psalms, in a unique way, uh, painted a picture of the Messiah who was to come. And so they use these Psalms uh, to paint a picture of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so we're looking at these, what are called the Messianic Psalms, the Psalms that the New Testament writers draw us to uh, in response to Jesus. And so this morning we are gonna be in Psalm 69. We'll read the first portion of it together. Um, And so if you uh, are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Psalm 69, verses 1 through 15. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the floods sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. I am weary with my crying out, and my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God, says the psalmist. How do we suffer when we suffer? How do we do so faithfully? How, in the midst of the inevitable heartache of living in a fallen world, 
how do we suffer with God and by faith? Right, we know that everyone in the world, broken as it is, will suffer. We'll suffer in our bodies, we'll suffer in our relationships, we'll suffer in our souls, we'll suffer in our communities, our neighborhoods. Right, so, and, that, and that's the same whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, right? Being a Christian doesn't get you out of the suffering of living in a broken world. So when you do, how does your faith inform that suffering? How does it give you some assurance in the midst of it? How even uh, does the suffering of Jesus connect to our suffering? That suffering so long ago, what difference does it make here and now in our hearts? You know, there's a hymn, a song, that has been included in nearly every hymnal uh, that's been published in America for the last 100 years. This song asks a series of haunting questions. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. The song goes on, were you there when they nailed him to the cross? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb and then ending in the hopeful note? Were you there when the stone was rolled away? There in the middle of a hymnal is this song where most most hymnals, if you're familiar with them, hymnals are like a book version of what we do on these screens, right? They're published uh, hymns and songs. Most of them uh, convey who wrote them, who wrote the tune, who wrote the lyrics, Uh, But this is an anonymous song. It's author lost to history. But what we do know about this song is that it was written by enslaved Africans uh, in the American South at the end of the 1700s, beginning of the 1800s. We don't know by who, but we know that it is a part of uh, what's really some of America's uh, thickest and best theological writing, our best songwriting uh, that grew up out of those spirituals that were sung uh, in the horrors of slavery. And of course, in one sense, the questions don't make any sense. Were you there when when they crucified my Lord? Of course, none of the writers of the songs were there 2,000 years ago. None of us, when we sing the songs, were there or are there. Right? What it is, it's an act of imaginative participation in the suffering of Jesus. What the songwriters were doing in the midst of their own suffering was taking hold of his suffering so as to fill their own suffering with a deeper sense of purpose, a sense of God's nearness to them and compassion for them and solidarity with them, even in their hurting. James Cone, uh, African-American theologian uh, who died just in the last couple of years, in his beautiful but heartbreaking book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, tells something of his own experience. He says, during my childhood, I heard a lot about the cross at Macedonia AME Church, where faith in Jesus was defined and celebrated. We sang about Calvary and asked, were you there down at the cross when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. There were more songs, sermons, prayers, and testimonies about the cross than any other theme. The cross was the foundation on which their faith was built. In the mystery of God's revelation, black Christians believe that just knowing that Jesus went through an experience of suffering in a manner similar to theirs gave them faith that God was with them 
even in suffering on lynching trees, just as God was present with Jesus in suffering on the cross. Sometimes some of our best theology comes not uh, from the ivory halls of academia. It comes not from famous dead white men that we read about in books, uh, but comes from the at times anonymous uh, people of the world who suffer and learn something of Jesus' partnership and nearness to them in the midst of their suffering. And something very much like that is going on in Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, it requires us to read it at multiple levels. You see, on the one level, this is the song of one solitary sufferer. Uh, It's attributed to David. It grows out of his experience of suffering. So it's the suffering of one man. By the end of the psalm, it becomes a song about the suffering of Israel. Right? So no longer just about the one man's suffering, but about the suffering of the many. And the hope of the many. If you look at the last two verses... Verses 35 and 36, For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it, and offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. So we don't know if these verses were added on later or if these were a part of David's song. What we do know is that what started as the song of one man, one man suffering faithfully with God, became a model for the many, for Israel, in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their poverty, in the midst even of their exile, to say this is what it means to suffer faithfully. This is what it means to suffer with God and not to abandon God in our suffering. So it goes from the one to the many. And then the New Testament focuses it very particularly back down to the one again. Three different times the New Testament writers take up the words of Psalm 69, and apply them to the suffering of Jesus, so that they place Jesus as the singer of Psalm 69. In other words, as all of Israel and their suffering began to wander away from God, began to no longer live faithfully with God, Jesus was left alone as the one who suffered and suffered innocently, suffered faithfully, suffered with God. In John chapter 2, When Jesus cleanses the temple, when he drives out the money changers in that famous story, the author uh, of the Gospel of John uh, remembers, verse 9, for zeal from your house, for zeal for your house has consumed me. He points points out Jesus as the one who's so consumed with God's glory and the good of his people that he suffers reproach of the religious leaders. Matthew chapter 27, as Jesus suffers on the cross, as he dies, and before he dies, as he expresses his thirst and asks for something to drink, Matthew tells us that they gave him sour wine to drink in fulfillment of the scriptures, by which he means, verse 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. The Jesus on the cross is the one who's suffering a mockery by those around him, those who instead of relieving his thirst would only serve to make it greater. And then in Acts chapter 1, in narrating the suicide of Judas after his betrayal, the author, uh, Luke, quotes verse 25, may there can't be a desolation and let no one dwell in their tents. Judas has become the enemy, the betrayer, the, ones who did, the one who has done in his action what those who were David's enemies only hinted at, 
right? Betraying God himself to death. And so the New Testament authors focus this psalm. It goes from David to being all of Israel and now to being Christ. The one alone who shows us how to suffer faithfully. And Christians for 2,000 years have then widened that back out to the many. How can we, the church, find in Christ comfort and encouragement and grace and strength and courage in our suffering? How can we respond and to suffer faithfully uh, with God? And so we're going to look at this psalm, four things that the psalmist shows us about how Christians should suffer. Christian suffering has always been and will always be counterintuitive and countercultural, right? Uh, it's not uh, what the psalmist experiences here is that his clinging to God and faith in his suffering actually causes him to get mocked. It causes him more mockery, right? When Christians suffer and suffer in some way believing God is with them in it, it's not uncommon for everyone around to look on like Job's friends, Remember that great moment in the book of Job where Job is suffering and his friends who've offered pious and well-meaning if hollow advice finally say, Job, why don't you just go ahead and curse God and die? Right? It doesn't take a genius to tell that God has abandoned you. Why do you cling to him? And so the psalmist here shows us that to suffer with God and to have God's meaning in our suffering requires us to learn uh, that Christian suffering involves crying out for help, repenting of sin, forgiving our enemies, and hoping in God. First, crying out for help. In the first three verses, the psalmist uh, uses one metaphor to explain what his suffering is like. And the metaphor that he seizes on is that it's like drowning. That when we suffer in this life, the feeling is like drowning. Something outside of you that's more powerful than you, that you don't have any control over comes up over you and you don't think that you can survive it. You feel the waters rising and you begin to lose hope of being able to get what you need to live, the air that sustains life. And so the psalmist cries out, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying out. He goes back to this imagery in verses 14 and 15. The idea is that his suffering is this rising of the waters, and he doesn't know if he can survive it. You know, the waters play an important role uh, in the Bible, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. The waters, the seas, the lakes, the rivers, the driving rain was for the Israelite primarily a symbol of chaos. It was a symbol of chaos. Imagine the feeling. I mean, we can still have it. I, just yesterday, I was standing by our own Atlantic Ocean and looking out. I uh, remember yesterday was kind of a stormy day. And as you look out over the ocean, you can see as the waters start to get rough, right? The lifeguard puts out the yellow flag and then the red flag in order to say, stay out of this water because if you go in, we can't, we don't know that we'll be able to save you, right? It's a small feeling to stand in front of a vast ocean and saying if the storm gets big enough, if it gets bad enough, 
then all of my best efforts aren't going to matter. It doesn't matter if I'm Michael Phelps. I can be the best swimmer in the world. And it's not going to help me against the power of that ocean. Right? Imagine the feeling. We, you know, we're Floridians. We know what it is to know that a hurricane is coming. Imagine what it was like to have no warning. Right? We, man, we start planning for hurricanes weeks in advance. We, we get, we buy, I've got a garage full of water for hurricanes that never came. Right? We start getting warnings. It's coming. The storm is coming. But imagine you're an ancient person living uh, 2,000 years before Christ, and you're out on a boat. And all of a sudden, it gets windy, and the storm comes up. The ocean was a symbol of chaos, that part of the world that lies beyond human control. And suffering in this life feels chaotic, doesn't it? Things that are beyond our control just start to happen to us, right? In a broken world, we suffer. We suffer betrayal in relationships that we never thought we would experience hurt and betrayal within. Places where we are trusting and vulnerable become dangerous. We experience, you know, one word from a doctor about your medical condition can change your life in an instant, right? Can change what you thought you knew about your future. Right, sometimes it's chaos within us that leads to that feeling. It's addictions, it's habits that we can't break, it's sin of our own production that leads us into trouble. But we can identify this, with this feeling of drowning in chaos. And this is why in the Old Testament and in the New, God's power is regularly depicted and described and demonstrated as his authority and power over the waters. Right, over the things that seem chaotic to us. Right, the book of Genesis begins. It says that God separated the water from the dry land. God separated out the chaos to create a place where men and women and children could live in safety. Right then, when God goes to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, he divides the Red Sea, right, showing his authority, his power over the waters themselves. Jesus demonstrates his power by calming the storm when he's on the water, by walking on the water, by showing his authority over the fish when he tells Peter to throw his nets onto the other side. The message of the Bible is that God has power over what, is, over what renders us powerless. That the chaos isn't chaos to God, but that he rules it and he subdues it. Which is why the psalmist is confused. If God is authoritative over the, over the chaos, if he's Lord over the waters, if he's the God who led our ancestors out on dry land through the Red Sea, why does it feel like I'm drowning? If he can stop the chaos, why doesn't he stop the chaos? If he can meet me in it, why doesn't he meet me in it? And so he cries out. His prayer may be uh, the simplest prayer of all in verse 1. Save me, O God. Save me. I'm incapable of saving myself. The waters are up to my neck. I feel like I'm about to be overwhelmed. God, save me. Friends, at its core, Christianity is a save me, O God kind of religion. It's not a help me Religion. It's not God help me figure out how to get myself out of this flood. 
It's not God, show me some rules, help me to understand how to get myself. It's not a God helps those who help themselves kind of faith. It's a save me, I'm drowning kind of faith. It's a faith that has its roots and its beginning in the experience of helplessness. Until you're ready to admit that you cannot save yourself, that you cannot get yourself out of the flood because the flood is inside of you as much as it's outside of you. Until you come to a place where you don't say, help me, help me figure this out, give me the resources, but instead cry out, save me. You're not ready to receive the rescue of the gospel. Christianity isn't at its core about help for the hurting. It's not about more wisdom for those who need just a little bit of help. It's about rescue for the drowning. And even more so, it's about the resurrection of the dead. Those who have no life, no ability, no strength, no wisdom or no goodness in ourselves, crying out, save me, and discovering the God who saves. Now, Jesus does something interesting with water, right? Not only does he demonstrate his power over it, but in the New Testament, Jesus transforms the, sim the symbolism behind water, right? What does water become primarily the symbol of in the New Testament? Right? It's transformed into the waters of baptism. Right? No longer is water the chaotic force out there to destroy it. But that Jesus, through his power, through going through the waters of chaos uh, in his own life, submitting even to the chaos of death itself, waters are transformed no longer into the threats that threaten to destroy it. But the very sign and seal of our belonging to God Right, there is a part of us that dies in the waters. But it's not the waters of chaos. It's not the waters of suffering. It's what Paul tells us. That in baptism, we die a death. The death of our old self, the death of our flesh, the death of our old man. In order to be born anew. Born anew in Jesus. Knowing that he has taken our suffering. He has taken our guilt. He has taken our shame. He has answered the cry, save me, O God. And he has. So the Christian experience of suffering begins with crying out for help. And it leads to repenting of sin. Now this isn't where we think we should go when we're hurting. But notice what the psalmist says in verse 5. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs that I have done are not hidden from you. Right, sometimes when we suffer, I don't know that I have ever been more self-righteous than when I'm suffering. Right, when we are suffering, when we are hurting, it is the, something that is so quick to our lips is, God, I don't deserve this. Right, there are so many people that are so much worse than me out in that world. Why am I suffering in this way? You know how often I've tried. You know how much I've gone to church and how often I've said my prayers. You know that I've tried to live the right kind of life. I've tried to have the right kind of marriage. I've tried to raise the right kind of kids. God, you owed me better than this. And yet the psalmist shows us another way. In the midst of his suffering, he says, God, you know how foolish I can be. You know how sinful I can be. You know how wrong I can be. You know how wrong I have been. None of this is hidden from you. Save me. 
Save me not only from the waters outside of me, but save me from my own foolishness. Save me from my own sin. Save me from my own self. Friends, sometimes suffering is of our own doing. Right? Some of us can look back on our life story and look at the times we've suffered and the, and the, the depths that we've been to. And in retrospect, look back and go, you know what? I'm, I walked myself into a lot of that hardship. A lot of those were not decisions other people made for me. They weren't things that other people pressured me to do. They weren't this kind of suffering of what seems like chance. Sometimes our own foolishness brings us suffering. Sometimes it doesn't, right? Some of us have been uh, raised in a way that, uh, and with a faith that tells us that if we're suffering, we must have done something wrong. Right? And that's not the case either. Right? Sometimes our sin leads to suffering. Sometimes our foolishness leads to suffering. But sometimes our suffering has nothing to do with our sin. Right? If you look for a one-to-one causality in your life, you won't find it. Right? Remember when the, the men, uh, the religious leaders of Israel brought a blind man to Jesus and said, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Right? If something bad has happened, it must have been somebody did something wrong. And what does Jesus say? He says, neither. This happens so that God's glory, that God might be glorified through his healing. Right? So when we suffer, we need to be open to the possibility that we're suffering because of some sin in our own life. Right? James encouraged, the Apostle James encourages us to think, even about our sickness, that it might have its roots in our sin. Right? When we're living in shame, when we're living in guilt, we know that we're, we're physical and spiritual beings. Sometimes we can get sick. We can waste away, David says, because of our sin. But he also says that, that, sin is not always, that uh, suffering doesn't always result from, from individual sin. Sometimes it's just the fact of living in a broken world, living in a world in which it's not as it should be. But this psalm models for us slowing down in our suffering long enough to ask, God, show me if there's something in this about me that you would have me learn. Show me if there's something in this suffering that you would reveal about my sin, about my pride, about my anger, about my arrogance. Show me what it is in this that I might need to own. You know, I don't know if this is anywhere uh, clearer than we see it uh, in relational suffering. Right, in the suffering that we can go through in our relationships, maybe particularly in the suffering we go through in our marriages. You know, it's not uncommon uh, when you're suffering in your marriage, when you're in a difficult place in your marriage, for both spouses to be pretty sure that the problems are 100% the fault of the other spouse. Right? You, I, you come in, maybe you're coming in for counseling. Maybe you're just working on it through, through it on your own. But if you're deep down, if you're honest, your prayer is, God, fix my spouse so that I don't have to suffer anymore. God, fix my spouse's pride, fix their argumentativeness, fix whatever it is in the moment so that I don't have to suffer their sin any longer. I remember um, a counselor that mentored me for a bit. Um, her advice, she would often say to, to, to clients when they come in with their marital stuff, even if the other spouse has done most of it, even, if, even in a situation where a spouse has been unfaithful, in a, in a situation where a spouse is contributing most of the issues, she'd ask uh, the offended party, 
How much of this do you think you can own? Even if it's, even if it's 98% their fault, even if it's 99% their fault, is there 1% of what's going on between the two of you that you can own, that you can repent of? And if so, let's focus on that 1%. Because you can't fix the 99%. Right? You can't fix the 50% that God is working on your spouse with. But what you can do, what you can own, in addition to praying uh, for your spouse and working as God gives you voice in that, what you can do is to say, God, show me my own foolishness. Show me my own sin. Show me, as Jesus says, the log in my own eye instead of me fixating on the speck in my spouse. So even in our suffering, we're called to repent of sin. We're called to forgive our enemies, uh, thirdly. You know, when we read this psalm again through the eyes, uh, through those new eyes that the New Testament gives us of seeing Jesus at its center, right, for most of it, it tracks along pretty neatly. Right? Like David, Jesus was consumed with God's house and his glory. Like David, he was mocked and betrayed by his sufferers. Like David, he suffered uh, innocently at the hands of those who betrayed him. But from verses 22 through 28, we notice a stark difference. I'll just read the first couple of lines of, Psalm 20, of uh, verse 22. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. We'll stop there. David in his suffering launches into what uh, theologians call an imprecatory prayer. Imprecatory prayer, what does that mean? He's praying for God's justice to be poured out on the head of his enemies. So I think I'm suffering unjustly. These people have wronged me. They've betrayed me. God punish them. And in this, we see a stark difference between even David, great as he was, and Jesus, who when Jesus suffered from the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Right? Jesus models for us and casts for us another way of dealing with our enemies. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, there in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He goes on to say, if you love your neighbors, if you love your friends, what have you done that's just not good old common sense wisdom? Right? What have you done that those living apart from God don't know how to do? No, if you just love your friends, if you just love people who love you well, then you've done nothing more uh, than just basic human relationships. But what I tell you is love your enemies. Love even those who hate you. Love even those who persecute you. And then he models on the cross, love even those who crucify you. Love even those who betray you. Now Jesus and David are doing in one level the same thing. They're both trusting in the sovereign rule of God, right? Notice what David doesn't do. David doesn't say, they've betrayed me. God, hold on for a second. I'm gonna go raise up an army and I'm gonna go kill them, right? He was a king. He could do that kind of thing. 
right? David doesn't take vengeance into his own hands. He does still pray. And Jesus is doing the same thing in a way. He's refusing to take vengeance on those who persecute him, on those who crucify him, even though it was well within his power to do. Instead, praying for them. What the gospel does in our hearts, as what it asks of us as we think about our enemies, is to love them, is to wish for their good and to pray for their good. That doesn't mean, does it, that, uh, that they're free of earthly consequences? Right? It doesn't mean that, that people can hurt us and that we have to continue to make ourselves open to their ongoing hurt. Right? We are allowed and, and encouraged to put boundaries in our lives, to, to separate ourselves from people who might be abusive or who might uh, do ongoing harm to us. But it means even when we desire them to get the consequence of repentance, of their sin, that we hope that those consequences bring them to the point of repentance. That we hope that those consequences bring them to the point where they too are able to cry out, save me, O God. Save me from your justice. Save me from the, the wrath that my sin deserves. It means that we never stop hoping for their transformation by grace. I've shared this story, I think, here before, but I had a, a seminary professor who wrote a book. Uh, he wrote a bunch of them. I don't, they were all basically the same. I don't remember its title. Um, uh, his name was Steve Brown. He's, he preaches on the radio from time to time. And he found out some of you know this story. Jeffrey Dahmer, one of the you know, worst criminals of our era, uh, was said to have converted in prison before he died. And my seminary professor got a call that his book was found in Jeffrey Dahmer's cell after he died. And that they think that God might have used that book to bring him to conversion. Steve Brown was not happy about this fact. He thought, I didn't write this book for people like him. Right? I didn't write this. I wrote this book for just normal, like, everyday sinners, right? People whose sin is like mine. It's, it's a little bit bad, but not, not that. But God used that experience in his life to go, you know what? If it's not true for him, it's not true for me. If it's not true for my worst enemy, if it's not true for the darkest heart, then it's not true for any of us. And that that can move us to a place where even our enemies, even those who've, who've caused us harm, we're able to look at them and to pray for them and to wish grace for them, even in the midst of their sin. So it's forgiving our enemies, and then finally it's hoping in God. Look at the way the psalm uh, finishes here. I'll read these last few verses, starting in verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves, so signs of sacrifice. When the humble see it, they will be glad. For you who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offsprings of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. The psalm ends with David and God's people dwelling together with God in his land, 
gathered back, built up, dwelling in the very presence of God. David shows us elsewhere uh, in the Psalms that his longing, his desire, above all else was for God. Right? Remember the, the great place where David, where David says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants after God. Right? David's desire was God himself. Communion with God, living with God. And friends, when that is your heart's desire, there is no suffering in this world that can take it from you. Right? We can experience communion with God even in the midst of suffering. Now, most of us live for something else. Most of us live to pursue comfort and pleasure and happiness and to avoid suffering and pain and loss. Right? And friends, if that is your goal in life, bad news. At some point, you will suffer. At some point, that goal will fall away. At some point, your health will be taken, your prosperity will be taken, relationships will be taken. But if your goal, if your desire, if your thirst is after God himself, then even the crucibles of suffering can only refine that more and more. Only, when, only when, is, when he's your desire can the stripping away of those other things actually only heighten your satisfaction in God himself. Christianity is marked by suffering. You know, we, we do believe, of course, in victory, in glory, in resurrection. We believe that Jesus is king over all things. But the king that we believe is a crucified king. Right? He's a king who suffered. He's a king who still bears the scars of suffering. It is a faith marked by suffering. And Christianity's greatest witness to the world has often been through suffering. Right? The second century apologist Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Right? It's been in the suffering of Christians that the world has looked in on the church and said, you know what, there's something there. There's something beautiful and something compelling, not just in the way Christians live, but in the way Christians die. Not just in the way they experience joy and gladness and fullness, but in the way they experience suffering and hardship and struggle. Howard Thurman was uh, a great early 20th century African-American theologian. He did most of his writing, 1920s, 1930s. He was himself a theological mentor of Dr. Martin Luther King. Howard Thurman grew up just down the road from us in Daytona Beach. He and his wife uh, had the opportunity to visit India uh, as part of a delegation uh, from the African-American church uh, here in America in the first part of the 20th century uh, to go uh, as representatives and to meet with Gandhi, uh, the, Hebrew, the, uh, the Hindu political uh, and religious leader. In his autobiography, Thurman reports, they had a great time connecting cross-culturally, learning from one another, learning from the suffering uh, that they shared between their peoples. And as the Thurman asked, will you do me a favor? Will you sing one of your songs for me? Will you sing, were you there when they crucified my Lord? He continued, I feel that this song gets to the root of the experience of the entire human race and its need for the spread of the healing wings of our suffering. Imagine this. 
Gandhi, not himself a Christian, he was appreciative of certain aspects of Christianity, but, but missed the, the central uh, exclusivity of Christ. This man who'd become a leader of his people, really a global leader uh, in the search for peace and justice, heard a song that was born in the plantation fields of Georgia or South Carolina, born of the songs of men and women whose names we do not know. And he heard of that song all the way across the world. And when he had a moment, he asked, can I hear it? Can you sing this song? Because there's something about the Christian hope in the midst of suffering that gives a power and a meaning and a beauty for it that all of the religions of the world, all of the philosophies of the world fail to. It's the suffering of Christians that lend credibility to the gospel. And so I don't know where you are broken and hurting today. It may be that you came in today and you were having a great day and this is just missing you. For that, I'm sorry for pulling you down into the mire. But more, than li- more likely than not, you come in and some part of your life, you know yourself to be broken and to be hurting. The beauty of where you are isn't that God will pull you out of it and then one day then when things are better, you'll have a testimony about it. The beauty of it is that Christ has suffered with you and as you and for you. He is with you in your suffering. And it's how you suffer, how you weep and how you pray, how you open up and let others in to your story as it's happening right now that will be a witness for the gospel, that will be a sign that suffering isn't the end of joy in this life, that suffering doesn't extinguish beauty, but instead can be the soil from which it grows. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.